Good afternoon and welcome back to Midday Magazine for Friday, March 10th. I'm Shelby Herbert reporting for KFSK. Governor Mike Dunleavy announced two education bills on Tuesday, which will be filed this week. One of these bills is a school staffing incentive that will provide full-time teachers a cash payment each July for a period of three years. Before the Petersburg School District's monthly board meeting this week, Superintendent Erica Klutpainer said that staffing shortages are high on the board's list of concerns. Recruitment and retention of teachers and administrators um, is really at a crisis state. And even now, we've had a couple of retirements and a few resignations and things, people doing different things with their um, next steps in life. And typically, over the years, we have a lot of applicants and people come and they move here and they want to stay and raise a family and do all those things. And Painter says the pool of applicants who want to teach in Alaska is very small. Compounding that, salaries have not kept up with the local cost of living, and Petersburg's housing shortage makes it challenging for new hires to find a place to live. Clude Painter says it's difficult for the school district to compete against schools down south for skilled applicants. They may have a, a lower cost of living. They're able to maybe find housing in a different way. And so absolutely, those are questions that people are asking us that I've never had this many conversations with people about the price of food, availability of, of travel, housing availability, health insurance, um, retirement concerns. Retention is the other half of the problem. Clude Painter says staff turnover uses up valuable research sources and hurts the district's quality of education. People come, they might come for four or five years, and then they move on. Mm. And that is not what we want. We want to invest in high-quality people. We want them to stay, raise their families, work in our schools, become important members of our community. Stability and security is important for a community, but also just instructionally. You know, if you have to keep starting over every year with new people and retrain, that all takes time. And it's not helpful, honestly, in the overall picture for kids and their learning. The teacher retention and recruitment incentive bill outlines three cash payments for each school district, $5,000, $10,000, or $15,000. The highest tier payment is directed at Alaska's most remote and rural schools. The middle tier is targeted towards rural schools that are still connected to Alaska's urban areas. And the lowest tier is focused on bringing teachers to Alaska's most urbanized areas. A separate bill to give the state more control over local schools accompanied the retention and recruitment incentive. The parental rights in education bill would require parental notification before a student participates in sex education and any activity, class or program related to gender identity. The bill also requires written permission from a parent before a student can change their preferred name or pronouns. Following Governor Dunleavy's announcement, the Alaska House Coalition issued a statement praising the teacher hiring and retention bonuses, but denouncing the parental rights bill as, quote, a distraction that will do nothing to fix overcrowded classrooms while removing local control and adding another layer of bureaucracy. Ketchikan's tribe is planning to build a substance abuse treatment center in the coming years. 
It's the first major project for Ketchikan Indian Community's new business arm. As Reagan Miller reports, the tribe hosts hopes to boost the region's treatment capacity as the community struggles with the ongoing opioid epidemic. As it stands, the practice of taking brown bears at bait stations is not allowed on the two-million-acre refuge, thanks to an Obama-era regulation known as the Kenai Rule. 2020, the Trump administration tried to reverse those protections in a proposed new rule, which also would have opened up access in the refuge to more bicycles and snow machines. But those rules never passed. And on Friday, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service announced it was withdrawing the proposal, citing the tens of thousands of comments submitted in opposition to the change over concerns about impacts to wildlife and visitor safety. The withdrawal isn't the only victory for those commenters. On Monday, the U.S. Supreme Court decided not to take up a legal challenge to the rule from the state of Alaska and Safari Club International, which has been working its way through the court for several years. This week was a big week in terms of the movement on these protections. Nicole Schmidt is executive director of the Alaska Wildlife Alliance, which has been defending the original rule and its protections. She says the decision shows the federal government does have authority to manage wildlife on refuge lands, including for the purpose of maintaining natural diversity. The second big point is that through the decision to rescind the 2020 rule, I think the refuge really listened to and took a hard look at what those changes would really mean on the ground. In its decision, Fish and Wildlife cited concerns about public safety related to brown bear baiting and increased access for hunters, for example. But advocates of the 2020 rule have a different take. Alaska has long argued it has the authority to manage wildlife on federal lands within the state, and it says brown bear baiting does not pose a risk to public safety. Ben Cassidy with Safari Club International said in a written statement, quote, Wildlife management decisions should not be made based on the number of public comments, but on the best available science. And the best available science supported the proposed rule. End quote. In Kenai, I'm Sabine Pooks. The Environmental Protection Agency held a public hearing in Fairbanks Wednesday to gather feedback on proposed rulings on a state plan to bring an area of Fairbanks and the North Pole and North Pole into compliance with federal fine particulate pollution regulations. The agency is looking beyond the primary culprit of wood smoke. And as Dan Ross reports from Fairbanks, heard a mix of frustrations from the public. The EPA has proposed disapproval of portions of the state air quality plan and ways to fix them. Agency proposals include reconsideration of new emissions controls for coal and oil-fired power plants, as well as other commercial sources of PM2.5 pollution, and a switch to cleaner-burning, more expensive, ultra-low-sulfur diesel heating fuel. The six-hour hearing included comments from dozens of people. Longtime Fairbanks resident Roger Burgraff took aim at the proposed ultra-low-sulfur diesel requirement. There is no refinery in the interior of Alaska that produces low-rank sulfur fuel. And the cost of making everybody comply with it will be astronomical. Shane Coyley, senior vice president of Doyon Utilities, which operates Fort Wainwright's coal-fired power plant, was also critical of the EPA regulatory proposals. 
Proposed solutions will do very little to improve the local air quality, but continue to drive local residents out of Fairbanks due to the increased cost of living here. We need the EPA to address the real causes, and the community can direct its resources to the correct solutions. Others like Philip White acknowledged the cost of cleaning up the air, but weighed it against the health impacts of air pollution. So I am worried about higher energy costs for my fellow residents. I'm also worried about the high costs that our elected leaders too often ignore. The stunted brain development of our children, the costs of dialysis and cancer treatment, the higher rates of dementia in our elders. So I urge the EPA to recognize these enormous externalities. And, you know, overall here I would urge the EPA to be fair but firm, to recognize the kind of unique environment up here, but get us on a plan that is going to redress this problem and ensure that, um, you know, we can breathe healthy air here. Andrea Feniger also highlighted health impacts and laid blame on state regulators. Too many Alaskans have already paid for our state's negligence with their health and with their lives, and robust enforcement cannot be delayed any longer. Patrice Lee with Citizens for Clean Air offered several proposals to help reduce fine particulate pollution without putting a financial burden on local people. Subsidize the cost of electricity on bad air days during alerts. Subsidize the cost difference between number two or one and the ULSD. Allow heat pumps to be covered under the targeted airship grant without destruction of the former boiler or wood stove that would become the backup. Place the non-attainment area in the power cost equalization plan or create a similar plan. Lee also advocated for support of renewable energy projects and state sale of some of its royalty natural gas to the interior gas utility. The deadline to comment on the EPA's proposed air quality plan actions is March 22nd. The agency must issue a final ruling on the state implementation plan by the end of the year. In Fairbanks, and Dan Bross. Ketchikan Indian Community owns a swath of land about 10 miles north of downtown. It's been set aside for years, and the tribe's new business arm is working to turn it into something big, what it calls a healing center for community members, native or not, with substance abuse issues. Ketchikan, and southeast Alaska as a whole, has seen a steep rise in opioid-related deaths in the last few years. State health officials tallied 23 opioid-related deaths in southeast in 2021, the last year that data is available, and eight were in Ketchikan, with two in nearby communities. Advocates have long rallied for more treatment options for the island. Ketchikan Indian Community President Norman Scan says that's the problem the tribe hopes to address. About two years ago, we, we just saw the, the trend of the opioid use just getting out of control, in, not only in our community, but outlying communities. And we felt like we needed to do our part to, uh, to help the individuals out. It'll be the first major project for the Ketchikan Tribal Business Corporation, essentially the business arm of the tribe. The corporation is a so-called IRA Section 17 corporation, named for the section of the Indian Reorganization Act that sets out the rules governing it. It's wholly owned by the tribe, but operates separately. Camille Booth is the corporation's operations manager. It gives um, the uh, benefits of being a, a tribal with also being able to build revenue in other streams and other areas. So it's very much an economic development arm. Booth says the corporation is somewhat comparable to regional and village corporations set up by the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. But instead of distributing profits to shareholders, dividends could potentially go to Ketchikan Indian community members. Just like with any corporation, when you have a corporation, then once the company is profitable, then, it, then dividends are 
likely, but the company has to be profitable before、um, dividends are offered. The corporation has three divisions: commercial, real estate, and government contracting. Booth says the real estate division will focus on leveraging the tribe's existing properties. The government contracting division could provide a variety of services. Thinking that could be in IT areas, it can be in environmental services, it can be in procurement. There's all sorts of areas of government contracting that that fit、um, our type of、uh, effort. The healing center is part of a larger initiative dubbed the Ten Mile Project from the corporation's commercial division. The corporation hopes to develop the property with alternative housing for people in recovery, single-family homes, trails, and even tourist attractions and art installations. It's in phases, of course, and so the first phase would be the、um, healing center and actually the substance use disorder center with housing for that sort of a transitional type housing, and then the next, then it would build into the、um, business area and then into. Additional housing out there because it is a very large property. John Brown is the corporation's vice chair. He says work is still in the beginning stages, and the 16-bed inpatient treatment center, let alone everything else sketched out for the property, won't open its doors for at least three years. They purchased the property and came up with, you know, and again, this was a long-standing thing that they wanted to try to accomplish,、uh, and so we are, we are part of that process, and so. We're in the process of again. We're putting ourselves in place so we can do stuff, and then the next phase is okay. How much funding do we need? Who do we need to contact? And those types of things. Details of the project are a bit hazy in this early phase of the project, but Booth says she hopes the project will support community members in every stage of their recovery. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Regan Miller. Alaska wildlife troopers caught three Kenai anglers in a fishing violation posted on their own YouTube channel, but then let them go with some fines. In the video, troopers say the men removed coho salmon from the water on the Upper Kenai River, which is not allowed during the closed season from November to June, according to a Wednesday statement from wildlife troopers. Jacob Keels, Ryan Cornelio, and Josh Lydes were all cited for removing coho salmon from the water. Trooper spokesperson Austin McDaniel says the wildlife troopers were notified of the video by the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. Keels, who runs the YouTube channel Kenai Boys Outdoors, says he's been fishing since childhood and started the channel with a friend last summer to give people a glimpse of Alaska life in the summer and winter. The page currently has more than a thousand followers. He says he was surprised by the trooper citation, but that in the future he'll be more responsible about the regulations and will ask questions when he's unsure of the rules. The trooper statement notes that Keels did make a video where he took accountability for his actions and set the record straight on fishing regulations. And、uh, it's been brought to my attention that we've been mishandling the coho we've been catching up here. And、uh, so today we're going to show you what to do right when you catch coho as a bycatch. Keel says the goal of his channel is to make good content with friends and laugh along the way. McDaniel says Keels and Lydes were fined $200 fines for fishing without a license, and all three anglers were fined $100 for removing coho from the water.
Reporting for KFSK, I'm Shelby Herbert, and you're listening to Midday Magazine. Up next, local and marine weather.